Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. If you are worshiping with us and you are in the three and four year old class, thank you for singing with us. You guys are dismissed to the back. Miss uh, Anne Marie is in the back, and so you can head to your class now. We will begin reading in Mark chapter 9. Uh, verses 14 through 29 as we continue our journey through the gospel of Mark. So I'm going to read for us, beginning in verse 14. If you do not have a hard copy of God's Word and you would like one, just slip up your hand. We've got church members in the back with extra copies of the Bible. If not, we will uh, also have it on the screen behind me. So let's listen together to the word of God and then pray for God to give us understanding. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, being Jesus, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often been the case, or he has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us understand. 
Father, this is a big narrative. There's a lot of details. And we come to you and we just ask that you would help us to grasp what it is that you mean for us to learn from this narrative. I mean, we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Mark narratives of Jesus exercising his authority and proving himself to be uh, the one true God. We've seen instances like this, but at this point in the Gospel of Mark, it seems that uh, the authors transition to help us to learn and to see what following Jesus means. So what is it in this text that makes it unique from the other texts that we've seen in Mark? What is it that that your spirit inspired Mark to write for our edification 2,000 years later, we pray that that same spirit that inspired these verses would now open our eyes to see what it is that we are supposed to learn from these verses and how this narrative is supposed to shape our week this week and the way in which we pursue you, God. We pray that you would, you would work the miracle of understanding as we meditate upon your words. And we pray that you would do this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been with us and you haven't been working through the Gospel of Mark, you might not know what has come just before this passage, uh, where Jesus is returning from. So let me fill you in a little bit. Jesus and three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are coming back from what was truly and literally a mountaintop experience. Jesus had just taken Peter, James, and John specifically out of the 12. He takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain where at the top of the mountain, Jesus pulls back the curtain on who he really was. He pulls back the curtain on the eternal magnificence of his divine glory. The text says earlier in Mark chapter 9 that when Jesus got to the top of the mountain with his followers, he transfigured. In other words, he transformed himself before their very eyes and the glory cloud of God's presence overtakes them and they saw Jesus clothed in dazzling white garments like nothing they have seen on earth. And they see Jesus speaking with Elijah and Moses, the prophets of old, and they're talking about the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. It scares Peter to death so much that he asks, says, should we build you guys some tents or something to like create some separation between the majesty of your glory and us they hear the voice of heaven declare this is my beloved son with whom i'm well pleased and then all the glory cloud and all the dazzling clothes and elijah and moses it all just vanishes and there's one person standing before them and they hear the voice say listen to him and it's jesus And so Peter, James, and John have just experienced something absolutely incredible, something that surely they had a hard time putting into words, and they're making their way back down the mountain. They make their way back to reality to live and walk in accordance with the plan that they've heard from Jesus. Deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. A plan that would require sacrifice and suffering and difficulty and messiness and complexity. A plan that would be carried out in the midst of a very broken and corrupt world. The descent back down into their present reality was very much like Moses' descent. From being on top of the mountain where he saw the glory of God. 
you remember in your Old Testaments, Moses too saw the glory of God at the top of a mountain. Moses too was engulfed in the glory cloud of the presence of God. He had felt the majesty of his presence. He had heard the authority of God's word. He, in fact, returned from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments in his hand that God himself had written. And what does he see as he gets to the bottom of the mountain? He sees chaos. He sees an unruly Israelite crowd worshiping a false god rather than the one true God. And now, just as we've seen paralleled throughout the entire story, now we here see Jesus and his followers descending from the mountain, descending from the mountaintop into the ministry world of which they were familiar. They find themselves descending into chaos. While Jesus had taken the three disciples up the mountain, He had left the other nine at the bottom of the mountain to continue ministering and caring for people, to continue teaching, to continue. Jesus had specifically and uniquely given them authority to to heal and to do some of the things that Jesus himself had been doing. But apparently, as they were by themselves at the bottom of the mountain, things got out of hand pretty quickly. As they're coming down the bottom of the mountain and Peter and James and John's and Jesus are there just all glowing over the time that they've had, uh, they come down the mountain and this is what they see in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, was greatly amazed and they ran up to him or they rushed him and greeted him. The first thing that you see is that familiar, pressing crowd of people wanting healing, wanting to see a sign, wanting to see a miracle. As we've seen in previous texts throughout the Gospel of Mark, the crowds are not always portrayed in the best of light. They're not always portrayed as having the purest of motives. They're not always people that just want to learn from Jesus and submit to Jesus. Oftentimes, they actually try to take Jesus by force to make him a political king. They're often trying to see what they can get from Jesus, not necessarily interested in what it means to follow Jesus. So the disciples, without Jesus being there, are feeling that pressure themselves. The crowds are surrounding them. But not only are they being overwhelmed by the crowds, they're also being face-to-face with some of Jesus' strongest antagonists. He walks up on the religious scribes challenging his disciples. The text says that they are arguing with them. The word itself conveys a sort of hostile or attacking speech. This is not a healthy, good discussion over religious things with a cup of tea. They are coming at the disciples with accusations and with questions, trying to devalue or discredit their claim about Jesus. And the scribes are not just any random Joe Blow on the street. These guys are well-trained. And without Jesus there to answer the attacks, they've turned their attention to the Jesus followers. And so Jesus walks up on this mess. I imagine Jesus walking up on the situation with the scribes sort of like coming at the disciples like a big brother would walk up onto their siblings being bullied, right? Jesus walks up and the question that gets asked in verse 16, Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about with them? There's a, there's a tone to the sentence. There's a tone almost like Jesus is saying, hey, if you've got something to argue 
about, take it up with me. What are you arguing about with them? It seems that the question is directed at the scribes. But as he asks the question, the scribes don't answer. Someone in the crowd provides the answer. So look at verse 17. Someone from the crowd answering, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So the father from the crowd confesses, hey, uh, this whole scene began with me. He had hoped to see his son healed from what appears to be a very violent, a very intense, a very uh, crowd-gathering situation. The symptoms he describes are a lot like what we might see as epilepsy. The young man will suddenly and without warning be thrown down uncontrollably. His muscles contract so that he grinds his teeth to his own detriment. He foams at the mouth. He cannot move or control himself. Later, the father says that this has been going on since childhood and that the seizures will often throw him into dangerous locations, almost as if they have a mind of their own. They happen when he's close to fire. They happen when he's close to deep water. There's the constant fear that his son is going to have a seizure at the wrong time and thus plunge him to his own death. The condition has almost taken his life. The degree of suffering that this father and his son have been enduring, apparently since the son's childhood, is severe. And both Jesus and the father recognize it's not just a physical problem, but there's actually a spiritual one in this case. There's a demonic influence that is tormenting this young boy. And I, and I imagine that when the father heard that Jesus was in town, perhaps there was some hope in his heart for the first time in a long time, you know? If I could just find Jesus and I can get my son before Jesus, I've heard that he can do crazy things. I've heard the stories about this one. If I could just get my son before Jesus and he comes to where Jesus is supposed to be and Jesus isn't there, but his followers are there. And they too, Jesus has given them some authority to do some things. So, so I imagine he comes to the disciples all full of hope. Only to be disappointed. Because the disciples are unable to provide the healing he was looking for. So not only are the disciples being overwhelmed by the crowds, not only are they being confronted and attacked by scribes, but they now have encountered a demon that they are incapable of overcoming, and they've encountered a desperate, hurting father whom they are unable to help. The disciples apparently had had to look this hurting father in the eyes and tell him, sorry, we can't help your son. We tried, but we couldn't. Even though Jesus had given them specifically, uniquely power to cast out demons as Jesus had, they found themselves strangely helpless in this particular situation. And, and I just, just imagine with me their failed attempts and what it must have felt like. Perhaps they tried the same things they had said before and had worked. Perhaps they found themselves saying particular formulas. Maybe I said it wrong. Maybe I need to do this. Maybe I need to speak with greater authority. 
Maybe I'll just say it louder. Maybe if I invoke Jesus' name in this way. I can imagine each disciple coming forward, giving it a try for a while, while everyone waited to see if the boy's symptoms had stopped, only to see him go back into convulsions again. Helpless feeling it must have been for the disciples. It seems like the experience of disciples at the bottom of the mountain was a very different experience than the disciples had going on at the top of the mountain, right? I mean, can you imagine sitting around the fire later as Peter recounts to Matthew what they had seen on top of the mountain? And Matthew's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Jesus left us down here in this mess while he took you guys on a mountain retreat with Elijah and Moses? (laughs) That's not fair. What's special about you three? I believe we could probably spend a whole sermon just there on God's prerogative to do what he pleases with us, and we don't have the right to question. (laughs) He might take three of us up the mountain. He might leave nine of us down at the bottom of the mountain, and either way, he's a gracious God we didn't deserve either. That ain't in the notes. That was for free. That's a whole other sermon. We'll preach someday. The situation that Jesus leaves his disciples in at the bottom of the mountain was one that was beyond what they could handle. In fact, the whole passage emphasizes the inability of the disciples. Look back at verse 18, at at what the Father says. He says, whenever it sees him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds the teeth, he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Literally, they... They had not the power. They were not able. Jesus had left them in a situation they were not able to overcome. And I don't think it's an accident. In fact, I don't think it's unique when it comes to following God. I think this is the first principle that we can see in the text. It's this. Number one, if you're a note taker, you want to write down some sort of logical principles we can see. Number one is this. Jesus leads us into more than we can handle. Like it's, it's often the plan. It's not a diversion from the plan. It's not a mistake. It's like, oh man, I meant to invite the other nine guys. Jesus often leads us intentionally into more than we can handle. He's not thrown off this, by this moment. Rather, there was a plan for this moment. The disciples were learning something in this moment, just as followers of God have learned before them, and we continue to learn after him. He leads us into more than we can handle. God often leads us into ministries, into places, into conversations, into seasons of life that we ourselves are not enough for. Consider the examples throughout Scripture where God has led his people intentionally into places like this. I mean, Abraham and Sarah are barren and elderly, and God calls them to bear a child from whom a whole nation will come. Moses is just one man who fled Egypt out of fear, and God calls him to go back to Egypt to confront the most powerful man in the world. David, the run of the family, too small for any of the armor available to him, God sends into the battle. 
Gideon was told to send home most of his troops and to only take 300 into the battle so that he would be overwhelmingly outnumbered. <laughs> I mean, God intentionally says, no, 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 the plan is for you to be outnumbered by a lot. Nehemiah, a simple cupbearer, no wall-building experience. God calls to return to Jerusalem in the midst of such opposition and to rebuild the wall. Just studying Acts this week where God led Paul into city after city where there were no Christians at all, surrounded by idolatry and hostility toward the Christian message. God strategically and he purposefully leads people into more they can handle over and over again so that at the end of the moment... There are two realities that are crystal clear. First, our own inability. And second, God's absolute unrivaled ability to accomplish his own purposes. Like God leads his people into more than to handle so they can trust him to handle it. And if, if you're in this room here and, and, and you're saying, well, that's not been my experience. I'm sitting here wondering if we're following the same Jesus. <laughs> Because his call that he, he led his disciples into in chapter 8, this deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, the call itself was so overwhelming that in that moment they thought there's no way that I could pick up a device of torture like a Roman cross and follow after this Jesus. If you think... Your own sense of ability, preparedness, and certainty is a good barometer for determining God's will for your life. You've got the wrong barometer. I would not be the pastor of St. Rose Community Church if that was the barometer of my life. I think that along the way, Jesus' disciples were tempted to misplace their faith by trusting themselves and their own ability more than they relied upon Jesus. And perhaps they had mistakenly believed that they had somehow, they were the ones who were special, they had the special authority, they could wield it however they pleased, rather than humbly draw near to God for him to supply it. And we will see how they tend to make it about them over and over again in the following chapters. But this moment... This situation exposed something that was already there. It exposed a faithlessness. In fact, it's faithlessness that Jesus identifies not only as the disciples' problem, but as the problem with the whole human situation. Look at verse 19. He answered, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, I don't think this response of frustration is directed just at the disciples. I don't think this, this, this response of sort of being just overwhelmed by it all is specifically or only at the disciples entirely. I think the faithless generation here refers to humanity in an all-encompassing way. I mean, everything that's happening at the bottom of the mountain. <laughs> I think Jesus expresses frustration with the situation as a, as a whole, the scribes pridefully opposing Jesus rather than humbling themselves before him. The crowd selfishly pursuing Jesus rather seeing the worth and value of who he really is. The demons tormenting humanity. The father being broken over a sick son. The son being suffering intensely for years and the disciples lacking faith. The whole story is a display of man's inability to cope <laughs> in a broken world. But it's also a story 
not only of humanity's incapability, but it's a story about Jesus' full capability. So look at verse 20. They brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell down on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him, but if if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So verse 20 and 21 expresses just how serious the situation is. But I want you to look um, at verse 22. Now remember, back in verse 18, the father says the disciples, and he uses a specific word, were not able or had not the power to act in this situation. But now the father says to Jesus, if you are able have compassion on us and help us. Now, there's a problem with his phrase. This is not the same phrase that was used earlier in the book of Mark when the leper came to Jesus asking for healing. Look at how the leper makes his request in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. The leper came to him imploring and kneeling and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now, what's the difference in the wording between these two requests? There's one big difference. One says, if you're capable. The other says, if you're willing. The man clearly says to Jesus, if you can do anything, If you're capable, Jesus, the man assumes that there might be limits to Jesus' power. There may be some situations Jesus just can't handle. There might be some situations that are just above Jesus' pay grade. And so this one might just be like level three, level four situation. Jesus can only handle level two. You get the sense that this is what is applied even by how Jesus responds in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, exclamation point, all things are possible for one who believes. The response is strong. It's not a matter of what's possible here. For those who ask of God in faith, it's never a matter of whether Jesus is able or whether he has the power to work in a particular way. It's always a matter of whether it is Jesus' will. It's a matter of whether this fits in a much larger plan God's carrying out in the world, something much bigger we might not even understand, but it's never a matter of ability. God is always able to answer any of our requests in any particular way. He lacks nothing and is limited by nothing other than his own purposes. So the point of this text is, number one, first, Jesus leads us into more than we can handle, and number two is this, Jesus can handle it. He doesn't lead you into situations he can't handle. <laughs> he doesn't lead you into situation and be like, man, like he's eating popcorn, like waiting to see what happens. <laughs> he leads you into situations you cannot handle and that he undeniably can handle. And this text forced us to ask, do you believe that? I mean, do you believe in the absolute, unrivaled power and sovereignty of God? Do you believe that there's no heart 
beyond the saving ability of God. No sickness beyond the healing ability of God. No person beyond the empowering ability of God. No community, no people group beyond the expanding kingdom of God. Think about the young man we prayed for this morning, Alex Bryan, who took this pastorate two years ago, a block off of Bourbon Street, and his building is built in the 1700s. I can't imagine what building problems he has. And he's got a meeting area where he will only ever be able to fit 40 people in that room, and he's got a group of people that he's ministering to that will never be able to give to his congregation in a very meaningful way, well, actually, maybe the most meaningful way they'll be able to give, but it will not amount to many dollars. You've got a very spiritually hard community, and you've got to think, what sort of logical processes went through his mind before he took that pastorate? <laughs> Was it for fame or riches? Was it because he thought he was awesome? Because the potential is just right? For the church to be big? Or did he take that position because he believed in a God that was sovereign and powerful to do just about anything? And that his role in the work was to simply follow that God. In every situation, it is never a matter of whether God is able. It is only a matter of whether God has this in his will and whether we will trust that will. The man speaking to Jesus, I think he recognizes that might not have been the way to say that <laughs> by Jesus' response. And then he immediately confesses his own inability even to believe rightly. Look at verse 24. And immediately, so the father's like, I probably should not offend the guy I'm pleading to heal my son, right? Immediately, the father of the child cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. So the disciples were unable to cast out the demon, but this man confesses his own ability to an even deeper degree. I can't even believe what I want to believe. He confesses his own ability to believe. He recognizes he cannot even help his own doubts. I can't make my doubt stop in this moment. He believes, but there's still so much of himself that just doesn't believe that Jesus is able to do this. So he pleads with Jesus, not only to show off his ability in healing his son, but he pleads with Jesus, hey, give me the faith that I don't have and that you're saying is important to have. And I, we just got to pause there and say, man, that's a beautiful prayer. That's a beautiful prayer that I think God is pleased with. God is able, I mean, not only to cast out the demon, not only to heal the disease, but he's able to actually give us faith that we don't have naturally. I believe God's pleased with these kinds of prayers. God, give me a deeper love for you. Like, I don't feel it, and I don't know how to manufacture it. Give me love for you. Give me love for others. They hard to love. <laughs> I do not have what it takes to love this person. Bless their heart. Lord, have mercy. <laughs> right? So give it to me. Give me faith I don't have. Give, 
God, help me to trust you. Give me joy I don't have. I don't know how to go to the market and buy more joy. Like, just give me what I don't have. God, give me wisdom I don't have. Discernment, the ability to fully believe. And this moment was no easier than healing this son. (laughs) Belief, giving it to a sinful person, is a miracle. That we give glory to God for. And Jesus shows himself capable of doing both. Verse 25. Jesus saw the crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you. Come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. We've seen this from Jesus before in the Gospel of Mark, but it's worth highlighting again. Notice the authority with which Jesus speaks. He commands this demon with one sentence, and it obeys. There is clearly a difference between Jesus and the disciples in this text. The disciples do not have the authority in and of themselves to command anything to happen. But Jesus is different. When he speaks, storms stop, right? When he speaks, demons just flee. When he speaks, death is just reversed. He is the God who is able, and it was through this situation where the disciples were confronted with their own inability that they had to learn all the more to trust Jesus' ability alone. And I think the whole point of the narrative The whole point of why this exorcism narrative is included at this part in the Gospel of Mark and why it's different than perhaps previous stories, I think it all comes into focus when Jesus gets alone with his disciples, as it often does in Mark, in Mark chapter 9, verse 28. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? That's, I mean, a legitimate question, right? I mean, you gave us the power to do it before. We did the exact same thing. Like, why couldn't we do this, Jesus? That was embarrassing. I mean, I mean, it's out there saying the same thing over and over. The dude's foaming at the mouth on the floor, and everybody's watching me. (laughs) Why, Jesus? And Jesus says to them, "This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer." Now, there's a lesson to be learned here. This is the point of the whole event. The disciples are wondering why they could not do it. And Jesus says the right response in that moment is to give yourself to prayer to the God who can do it. In other words, the power is not yours to wield as you please. The power is God. So when you come face to face with that moment of inability, it's not a, hey, dig down deeper, say the same thing over and over again, find it within yourself. It's fall on your face before a holy God who has the power and plead with him. When you come face to face with something like this, the response is reliance upon God, nothing more, nothing less. And the tangible, quantifiable way you rely on God practically is prayer. Prayer, by the very nature of what it is, is a declaration of your dependence. I mean, that's what prayer is. You don't go to prayer to tell God how awesome you are and that you have it all under control. 
Do you? I mean, is that part of your prayer in the morning? Hey, God, just want to let you know, I've got this today. Just, you wait and watch. That's not what we pray when we go to the Lord. (laughs) When we get on our knees and we pray, we acknowledge the two realities that are put on display in this text. First, God, I'm not able. Second, God, I believe you are. Right? So this, so this is truth number three of the, of the text and our final truth in this morning. Prayer is our declaration of dependence. And there's a couple things in the Christian life that we are great at talking about more than we actually do. Two of them are evangelism and prayer. Great discussion topics at a Bible study. But how much do we talk about these things versus how often we actually do them? (laughs) Prayerlessness is at least one of the most evident shortcomings of our own Christian walks and the modern church as a whole. We simply don't pray when we're faced with situations beyond what we can handle. And our lack of prayer is not due to our usual excuses. I mean, if I were to ask you, why is your prayer life so bad? Your answer to me would likely be some sort of combination of I'm very busy, I'm not very disciplined, or maybe I don't know how. But our prayerlessness is actually not due to those things. Those things are very overcomeable. Our prayerlessness is is primarily due to an overconfidence in ourselves and a faithlessness when it comes to what God is able to do and the fact that he actually listens and responds to our praying. The the issue is not busyness. The issue is not, I'm not a very disciplined person. The issue is faithlessness. It's a a firm belief in our own ability to do it by ourselves (laughs) and not a very strong belief in that God is actually listening to us, the one who is able to do anything and everything. We often even deceive ourselves into thinking we really have given a considerable amount of time praying for a situation. We, we, we literally, we do this because we're crazy, because we're sinful and crazy. We think we've given a lot of prayer to a situation because we've worried about that situation a lot. Because that situation's kept us up at night because we're struck with anxiety about it, because we're talking about that situation over and over and over again with friends, because we're trying to handle that situation in a biblical and godly way, none of those is the same thing as praying. (laughs) You've not actually prayed about something if you've asked 30 people to pray for something for you. At at youth group, when I used to youth pastor, I would say you're not allowed to offer a prayer request in this room unless you've actually prayed for it yourself. Prayer request really went down. (laughs) There was not as many requests because we deceive ourselves into thinking we're depending on the Lord when really we're depending on ourselves over and over again. We're just slapping some Christian lingo on top of our problems. But here Jesus acknowledges that there are some things you will face that you will be totally incapable of handling on your own. There's some things you can't fix. There's some things you can't accomplish. And prayer is the path that God has commanded you to take. And it's the path for finding both the will and the power of God. And I find myself even in pastoral situations where I'm in conversation and someone says, well, I guess all there's left to do is pray. 
might be the wrong order. <laughs> I mean, you, you consider the right response of the people of God in Acts 4 when they were confronted with the possibility of persecution ramping up amongst their community of faith. Acts chapter 4 uh, the leaders of the church have been imprisoned, and then there's a threat that if there's anyone speaking in Jesus' name anymore, then there will be much worse consequences to follow. And I think of, of what it would be like if that were to occur, occur in St. Rose, if there was a, a threat from the government that went out that said that there will be strong response to anyone sharing the name of Jesus. And I wonder how many of our churches and how many of us would immediately form a persecution evasion committee place an evangelism in prison training course into the works to get everybody ready, start a financial campaign to help Christians get into safe houses outside of St. Rose. Man, we would do all kinds of stuff. We'd have a website up in no time on how to help other churches that are going through this thing. But look at Acts chapter 4. This was the immediate response in verse 23 of Acts 4. It says they were, le they were released and they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Down in verse 29, it says, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. A boldness they were incapable of generating on their own. A boldness they couldn't just sort of work themselves into, get a running start and plunge into evangelistic situations. No, they needed a boldness that, that they couldn't create, but one that God could give them by his miraculous power. And at the end of that prayer session in verse 31, preserved in the scriptures almost as a testimony to us, like, hey, this is the right response here. <laughs> There's actually a visible manifestation of God's answer in verse 31 when they prayed the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And it was in their praying they declared their own dependence of God and it was in their praying that God revealed it was actually going to be him carrying out the mission. It was going to be his boldness that he would give. God has this thing rigged. So that as we humble ourselves in prayer, it actually exalts God to be God and not us. When prayers are answered, he alone gets the glory and honor that's due him. And it's obviously his work and not ours. So three truths that we see this morning. Jesus leads us into more than we can handle. Jesus can handle it. And three, prayer is our declaration of independence, or not independence, dependence. <laughs> this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, and I want to conclude this morning with a few takeaways. They're simple. They're, they're obvious overflows of the three truths. Number one is this. Embrace inability. Now, this should be a very freeing concept to you, I hope. It's a freeing concept to me. It is okay for you not to know how to handle a situation. Let me say that again. <laughs> it is okay for you not to know how to handle a situation. I don't know that we actually believe that. It's okay for you to be unable to fix something or someone. 
It's okay to be face-to-face with a task, with a need, with a ministry opportunity, with brokenness that you are unable to overcome. God knows that you are made out of dust. He's not surprised by that. God knows that you're finite. He knows you don't have perfect knowledge. You don't have perfect wisdom. You don't have all the power. You're a creature, not the creator. You have limits, and it's a good and God-glorifying thing to recognize your own limits. I was recently, I had, I had coffee with a pastor in the city of a big church in the city uh, just a couple weeks ago. He's a super kind man, and he was, he was sitting there, I was saying, hey, how can I pray for you? And he said, man, I'm, I actually started going to counseling just to talk through the anxiety that I place on myself, the pressure of pastoring a church. And he said, and I was in counseling, and I was expressing all of this, that I was frustrated that I'm not like other guys. Like, I know other guys, they, they can only sleep six hours a, a night, and they wake up by like four in the morning, and they've already like productive and like pumped out a sermon by 8 a.m., and you know, and, and I'm not like that. I need a full eight hours. I need this. I'm just, and, he's, and he starts expressing all the ways in which he was falling short as a pastor and as a dad and all the types of things. And, and he said he was expressing this to his counselor, and the counselor responded to him with a sentence that has stuck with him. The counselor said, it sounds like you're really frustrated with being human. <laughs> and he said, you know what? You're right. I'm frustrated with the very natural limitations that embody me as a human person. We're supposed to find ourselves in overwhelming situations where we don't know how to handle it. And we're supposed to trust a God who can. In fact, I would say if if you don't ever find yourself in the midst of situations that are beyond you, then I would say, ask the Lord to search your heart if you're following after his will the way he desires. Because last time I checked, the great commission that he gave the disciples was that his glory would be made known to the ends of the earth. Like big, big things that God has called his people to participate in. In fact, the whole Christian, if you're not a Christian here, this is not like a motivational speech for you. Saying like, hey, you know, you can do it and God can help. The, actually, the way to become a Christian, the way in on this, is for you to come to the absolute end of yourself. In fact, the gospel message itself is not, hey, you're pretty good and God can make you better. The actual gospel message, the good news of it is, you are totally sinful and totally incapable of saving yourself. You can't do enough good things to counterweight all the bad things in your life. And that's why Jesus, the capable one, came and lived a perfect life and died the death that sinners deserved and rose again on the third day to offer you eternal life that he achieved. All that you have to do is trust his ability and confess your inability to save yourself. That's how you get in on this thing, is to confess weakness and sin. That took longer than I meant for to. Embrace your inability. Number two, trust God's ability. Trust God's ability. There is a peace that comes when you believe in a God whose power and ability is never the thing in question. The question is whether it's his will 
and whether we will trust it. And we get to sleep at night knowing that that there's an all-powerful and compassionate God that governs the universe, and we don't have to. As much as you think that as you lay on your pillow at night, you are solving the world's problems, you don't have to. <laughs> there's someone that, that that's in their job description, and it's not yours. God gives his people rest. And lastly, number three, this is a pretty simple one, pray. How will you plan to pray this week, this month, this year? If you don't plan to pray, you're planning not to pray. It's not something that you're going to stumble into accidentally unless you're smacked with a Mack truck of your own inability and it forces your knees to pray. Maybe you should pray before you get there to that point. So pray, very easy application. How will you plan to pray this week? So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, let's pray that he would help us to pray. Lord, we love you and we ask that you would help our unbelief. Help us to walk away with, from this text with what you would have us to walk away with. We, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to be a praying congregation who trusts in you and not ourselves. And I pray for the person in this room that does not have a relationship with you. Whew, that they would recognize that it is Christ who accomplishes it, not them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.